Just remember, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help each other. Welcome to A Special Place in Hell, the podcast where an aging Gen X author and a self-hating millennial activist come together to thoroughly and conclusively solve our culture war problems with our combined wit, wisdom, and most importantly, lived experiences. I am the aging Gen X author, Megan Daum, and with me is the self-hating millennial, Sarah Hader. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning, Megan. How are you? I'm well. We're we're doing another super early early Saturday morning recording. I like it. Not quite as early as last weekend. Really, it's it's seven a.m. Like for later. me. Yeah. Well, <laughs> wow. yeah, it's very early for you. It's not as early for me, but I like to be relaxed. You know, like I like it to be the end of the day. Wait, what's and... that? I don't know from yeah, this right. of what of sure. what you speak. What is this relaxed <laughs> thing of what you speak? Um. A glass and a half of wine. Oh, is, okay. Oh, we so we can't do that in the relaxed. morning. Okay, that's yeah, a good good point. Unfortunately, um, yeah, I'm I'm going out of my mind because I am about to launch a Substack. Uh, because I come to everything late. I know that I should have done this years ago, um, but I'm doing it now, and it's uh, pretty complicated. Actually, there's a lot involved, as it turns out. Mm-hmm. Um, so but that's so exciting. Yeah, everybody. Are you excited? Are you ready to um, write? <laughs> yeah. So what it is, I know. So the reason I've been avoiding doing the Substack is because I've been avoiding writing because my fear was that if I did it, I would, I would, that people would be paying me out of their pocket. This, I mean, my fear was that people would be paying me because of, I don't want to get paid ever by anybody. Now, my, my fear was that <laughs> like I would then be beholden to these people would sacrifice their hard earned money and I would have to deliver some kind of. Oh, you did content. Are, yeah. Well, yeah. I am going to do right. But yeah. so and, you know, as I've talked about, I got really burned out on writing opinion pieces and culture takes and all that kind of thing. And so I really haven't written much of anything um, in the last year or so. And I also didn't I was avoiding writing personal essays just because I thought that um, I don't know. I don't know why. I kind of just didn't want to talk about myself. Um, but I'm going to go back to that. So the Substack is going to be um, the Unspeakable podcast and what people used to get. It's moving from Patreon to Substack. So the people who used to support me on Patreon and get all the perks there are just going to be able to do all that on Substack. But in addition to that, I'm going to be writing stuff and a lot of personal essays. So we'll see how that goes. But it's a little, it's like a little bit complicated to explain to people on the Substack, various Substack posts and emails that you've sent out, what you yeah. are doing. Yeah, and they won't get it. So just they just won't begin, they won't understand you know, just... anyway. I have a lot of bullet points. You know okay. what I'm saying? That'll help. Yeah, <laughs> um, but I would just I would just just start to start, and they'll 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 figure it out when they get the emails, or they'll send you. Uh, Really a complaint. They'll send complaints. Yeah, I complain and they'll say, "Stop it! Get me off of this list. I really? can't figure it out." Yeah, I got a, I got one of those, and I was like, Ugh, "You signed up for this, man." Wait, they signed up, and then they were like, "Stop sending me these." Oh, yeah. 
Thanks a and lot. I don't even email that much, <laughs> so I don't even. Get yeah, right. It. You pay, I, I, I don't even always... bother you if you if you pay if you subscribe as a paid subscriber. I will. I will, will, never... I will never darken your doorway will... again. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what was going on. I mean, but there's always going to be the bigger your list gets, the more weirdos are there, confused and you know disoriented and like taking it out on you. I know. So. Yeah. <laughs> there's so many things you could say like Bridget Fantasy who I who I adore and she's been on my podcast I think twice but and I mean but she I remember one time we were talking about like different kinds of ways to do this and offer and I think at one point she was one of her offerings was a tasteful nude like I, this was not on Substack, but this was some. This was her uh, her fantasy thing. Anyway, so she was like offering a tasteful nude, and I was thinking, wow, if people would subscribe to my thing um what they would get in exchange is that i would never send them a tasteful nude mm. otherwise i will send it so it would be it would be like a hostage kind of thing like if i am going to send you nudes of myself every week until you start paying me and then i'll stop you know we could do that we could do that to our subscribers now we have yeah. this opportunity to threaten well, them with nudes. careful what you yeah exactly although it's like if you pay i don't know i'm gonna give given our age difference i think it'd be like if they, there would be certain tiers and like they would they probably want they probably want a tasteful nude of you perhaps more than of me well, what but, does that you know, even mean tasteful you know, nudes? i don't even get it um i think it just means you're not nude, really not nude like, <laughs> yeah that's that's what i thought yeah like you're nude but you're like kind of covered up yeah it's maybe because it's maybe it's in black and white it's like arty. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I think it just yeah. means it's art. Okay. So, yeah. Um, yeah, we could do that. So, anyway, lots to experiment with on the Substack. It's evolving, <laughs> as is everything. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> get ready for that. I think it's going to, it's going to, I don't know when this is going to drop. It's going to be great. It's going to be, gonna be great. great. Everybody, we will announce it on this podcast when it's all up and running. Yeah. And, you should all subscribe yes. to Megan's Patreon. Yeah. Or Patre- I won't say Patreon. <laughs> Substack. The sub- Substack. Yeah, no and more Patreon. Subscribe, subscribe to mine. Substack. Subscribe yes. to mine. Subscribe yeah. to hers. And right. we'll figure out. We're, we're thinking about what to do in terms of like bundling. But it's, yes. it's all up in the air. Substack doesn't have some features out yet, but they might. Yeah, they're, they they're do, working on it. Know, a lot of right. ifs and, and Right. When, so we should say yeah. that if you are annoyed because you're already paying to subscribe to this podcast, um, just bear with us. We're going to we're going to figure it out. Um, yeah, we'll, and fig- if we'll figure out yeah. something. Yeah, we're, we're but it's we're mindful of this. That's all. Yes. Yeah. Yes. OK. Um, so any other announcements that you have? Uh, you know, anything you want to promote? before we get started um, no not uh not this time um i think you know the thing we want to talk about today is the the student loan forgiveness but we don't really want to talk about policy because that's no not, that's not what this podcast is about no we're and all we about forgiveness we're, about, so we're all about <laughs> forgiveness here and so this is a um, perfect subject for us but i i um was reading Megan your essay from 1999, mm, October wow. 11th, 1999. That's so you, you wow. went into like the uh, antiquities section of the bookstore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, so this is so this is such an interesting essay. It's called "My Misspent Youth." It's in the New Yorker. Yes, it was uh, in the New Yorker, the old New Yorker, <laughs> not the New Yorker as you as you described last as, week. 
Um, yeah, but this was back when the New Yorker, it was like was huge. Good. It was huge to be in the New York. Like if you were a writer, all, you wanted to be in the New Yorker more than anything in the world. Like that was the absolute brass ring. So, and, wait, um, so, so how did it feel t- for you to be published in the New Yorker? Well, was this was actually my second. No, it was my second piece oh, okay. in the New Yorker. Um, oh, wow. But so this piece. It. Yeah, I know. Look where I, and look where I am now. <laughs> Um, I knew that one day if I, if I achieved such greatness, I could then be selling merch in in 20 years and and here we are. Um, yeah, so that was a piece, uh, it ended up being the title essay of my first book, which was a collection of essays called My Misspent Youth. And it was about many things, but it's about, on the surface, it's about how I ended up, um, like about almost... $80,000 in debt by the time I was 28 or so. And a lot of it was from student loans. Um, But it was also just about the kind of romance of New York City and my ideas about what it meant to be a creative person in in New York and just confusions I had about socioeconomic class and and all that kind of stuff. So that's what the piece is. There was a lot. I mean, it's a long piece. You guys should go and find it and read it. Um, we can link to it. Yeah, we can. We will link to it. Um, it's also the. It's also in my book. You can also go get my book, My Misspent Youth. It's available. Yeah, there are many. Yeah, yeah. Do that. Do that. So that then you give Megan <laughs> a little bit more money yeah. and get her out of that hole. Oh yeah. Um, so so the <laughs> we. <laughs> so the, the one thing. I mean, this is a question. Um, is what is is was eighty thousand dollars way different back then? Like, I mean, what was it? Nineteen ninety nine. Oh, eighty thousand dollars. Uh, yeah, yeah. Today that would be like it's like, it's eight, like eight million dollars. Eight million dollars. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, you can see. So in that piece, like the it's it's hilarious to read it now because I, the numbers are seem so small. You know, I'm complaining about like yeah. how much rent is of a New York City apartment, and I, I'm like, this is twelve hundred dollars, this yeah. apartment or something, and um, <laughs> obviously you know i'm sure people are rolling their eyes but um yeah i mean the piece is a little it's 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 complicated because my parent my my family's socioeconomic status was really weird because my parents kind of pretended to be not kind of my parents pretended to be one one way when we were really very, very different. Um, my mother, it's, I mean, this, we can go into this backstory later if anybody cares, but, um, we were this sort of X class. Like my father was trying to make it as a freelance composer and music arranger. Um, and it was a, he basically had a career kind of similar to mine, like very uncertain and, um, seat of the pants and just, you never know where your next check is coming from. Uh, but he was doing that, trying to raise a family in the suburbs. And that was just like a real, just not, it, it was, it was not the right choice. Let's just put it, put it that way. <laughs> it was not the right choice for him to, to have a family, to live in the suburbs, any of it, uh, which he would have been the first to admit. But um, yeah, I just, uh, I guess, yeah, so I ended up taking out a huge amount of student loans to go to graduate school, mind you. So um, this is not like a like a, p- a pity party. I- I'm, I'm talking about how my own sort of delusions led me to go to um, an MFA program in writing and take out a huge amount of loans to go to, to Columbia. Um, 
which I loved, but was incredibly expensive. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I mean, even even way back then, it was um, very expensive. Yeah, it, yeah. I loved so much of this essay, um, and I I really liked um, this section where you describe all these class distinctions. Yes, and you 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 make them explicit, um, which is fascinating. It's like. Uh, let me, let me just read directly okay. from it. Um, you said, as, as far as I was aware at 17, rich was something else entirely. Rich meant monstrous Tudor-style houses in ritzy section of my town. Rich was driving a BMW to school. Um, I uh, let, me, let me see. Let me keep skip to this. There's something about my orthodontist, and I think. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. The distinct feeling that my orthodontist, who had a sprawling ranch house with front steps that were polished to look like ice, was rich. None of these particular trappings of wealth held my attention. In fact, nothing outside of the movies really held my attention until the night in 1987 when I saw the apartment on 104th, 104th Street? 104th Street. 104th Street, yeah. Um, so describe this apartment. Okay, like, well, so and it's meaningfulness. It was so meaningful. So right. So we lived in a, a town in New Jersey, about twenty miles or less, actually, outside of Manhattan. Um, but it might as well have been a, a world away. I mean, the people in my town were not they 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 were not interested in the, the the kids were not like city kids at all. They were preppies. It was like being in a John Hughes film or something like that. Do you know what a John Hughes film is, no, Sarah? Oh no, my no, no. God! You don't even have Ferris to ask. Bueller's Day Off. Okay, okay, yeah, 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 got it. But I wouldn't have known. Sixteen like, Candles. Okay, preppy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 80s. I know that. I know, yeah. Okay, all right. Um, yeah. So my father uh, had to go into the city to drop his music off with a music copyist. So my father did a lot of he did a lot of arrangements for commercials so back he was an orchestrator so back when you know there were actual big you know kind of session players showing up for um to, to record things like commercials and he also did a lot of like animation scoring that that kind of thing um he, he was ex incredibly talented but he was a horrible networker so he actually <laughs> he could have had a much bigger career that, than he did like he was he had a solid career but was never you know was never over the top in any way so anyway but he you know you had to get your the the parts hand copied at that time so there was people who's you know music copyists who would who would take the parts and copy them into parts anyway so we drove into the city oh that's right i was learning how to drive a stick shift that was the whole thing so we drove our our plymouth horizon car uh into the city uh so i could practice driving and we got into the we got to the city and so uh we got to the upper west side and it wasn't even like the upper west side of the of the kind of you know more posh west 70s and 80s kind of thing this was 104th street and west end avenue which is you know that that time kind of like artsy shabby um just classic old school kind of intellectual manhattan and we went into this guy's apartment. It's like a middle-aged guy. I say middle-aged. He was probably in his 30s. <laughs> he might have been in his 40s. I don't know. Um, and, you know, it was like uh, you go up in this rickety elevator. It was one of those pre-war buildings, very ornate and beautiful architecture, but, you know, a little bit shabby, no, no doorman. You go up in this, like, old-fashioned elevator and you get off. And, you know, the guy had a, a pretty small apartment, but... 
it had like the the original oak floors and and the original mm. moldings and it just was was you know that's just classic like it looked like you were walking mm. into a, a a woody allen movie of, of that time mm. you know a, a place where mia farrow would live and you know the the radiators are you know spewing steam and the the paint is chipping off of them and but it, it just and but there's these you know oriental rugs and plants and it just it looked it was the apartment of a sophisticated new york person who was the opposite of somebody from the suburbs um and the opposite of where my parents had grown up, which was basically the Ozarks. So my parents had defined themselves in opposition to where they had grown up. And here I was standing at this, in this apartment and I thought, okay, I have seen my future. This is the life I want for myself. This is all I want in the whole world. And this was nothing fancy. Mm. Like somebody from my Mm -hmm. high school could easily have walked in this apartment, into this apartment and said, gross, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was all I wanted. So from that moment on, I embarked on this, you know, sort of private and anthropological study slash plan uh, to get myself into such a place. Um, and uh, and I'm gonna, I'm mayhem gonna ensued. For, <laughs> I'm going to read one more, one more little okay. paragraph. And that I think is a re- really great jumping off point for, uh, our conversation about Biden's proposal. Um, I plan my escape from the suburbs through the standard channels, college selection. My logic informed by a combination of college guidebooks and the alma maters of the brides featured in the Times weddings announcements went something like this. Columbia rather than NYU, Wisconsin rather than Texas, Yale rather than Harvard, Vassar rather than Smith. My ranking system had little to do with the academic merits of the schools. It was more of a game of degrees of separation between me and an apart and an apartment fill- full of house plants on the Upper West Side. Um, oh, so I, I'm so this is amazing, like that you were able to like um, discern through you know these various cultural you know uh, yeah. guides. Uh, where different schools stood on that on that totem yeah absolutely uh that's amazing this doesn't make any sense to you no it, no 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 it it, it no does, but it at the time me, right. but it's now also something it i don't know how to do now it does well now that you would know I, how to do it now you would know how to do it i now. would know how to do it now yeah i could do it now but me as a teenager wouldn't I this would have been gibberish to me I wouldn't have understood what right well because you were yes like it because that you were first generation uh mm-hmm. yeah so that makes yeah that makes in order sense. for this to ma- in order for these distinctions to make sense at all you have to already possess a certain amount of cultural knowledge uh, yes um yeah and I didn't possess any of it so this would have meant nothing to me right right um, yeah well so my mother was obsessed with uh, kind of with, like I said, with, with class status. And um, she really expressed a lot of it through aesthetics. Like she had her own, she, it, she was at once very sophisticated about this kind of thing and completely clueless. Um, mm-hmm. So, and, and also she, she, her, her entire life was, was guided, um, was, was, was defined by not being like her sort of hillbilly ish, mother and and upbringing i mean i Mm. it's hard to talk about this because it comes across sounding very cruel and i don't mean it to be and i've written about this a lot so if people want to 
people can just go go dig into this but um yeah she was she, basically i was raised to be a snob the way to carry out the, the way to please my mother was to be a cultural snob um mm-hmm. and so that was that was also part of this um but a snob in a in a in a truly you know not not in a like act like a woman with a Fendi bag kind of way, like just a, a true intellectual, which my mother was mm-hmm. not by any means. Um, yeah. But she wanted to have the home of an intellectual. What what my mother actually wanted, she always said that she w- wished that she were an academic, which makes no sense at all, actually, in retrospect. What she wanted was to be an academic wife. She wanted to have the home of like some college professor living in a college town. Which, which yeah. in a way has a similar aesthetic to that to that West End Avenue apartment that I walked into. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just mm-hmm. that the 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 West End Avenue apartment is a hell of a lot harder to get uh, and more expensive than like a really nice house in Iowa City that has basically the same look. Mm-hmm. And I was confusing the two. I thought that they were just kind of one and the same. And that's where I kind of got off on the wrong foot in some ways. And then, yeah. And then um, into, into some debt, which. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but the debt didn't come but, until later. I mean, yeah. 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 One, one piece at a time. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, it's hard for me to, I've changed, so I've made so many leaps in my life, um, my short life. Uh, I, that I <laughs> don't brag, <laughs> please. I mean, oh my I'm short very, life. I'm a, I'm practically a baby. Um, but it's uh, <laughs> um, it, it it's you sort of get you know the sense of uh, like it, sometimes I feel, now, I wouldn't say lost, but a little bit disoriented, um, because of the 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 differences that are hard to really parse um, explicitly the way that you you parsed here um, for someone like me but I noticed them you know like I noticed that that there's uh, the people have a sense of taste I that it's not the sense of taste that I grew up with I'm picking up on it you know it's sort of intuitively the to the best of my ability but mm-hmm. it's not it's still not a native tongue Right. Because right. Right. It, 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 it's still very much something that at best I can try to be very observant and adopt. But I also, you know, I also despise it. So, I'm yeah. So you're but so right. It. You are you're in the the sort of um, position that my that my mother was in. I mean, my mother had to learn all of this stuff on her own. So yeah. that's that was the yeah. generational. Right. Because like my parents Ooh. were the first to go to college in their generation. And so, right. Yeah. Well, well and, see, so my, my parents did go to college, but they just, they, and they were in a higher upper, like uh, I would say upper middle class in, yeah. in Pakistan. But, yeah. but when we came to America, it was a, a huge, I mean, obviously, cause they didn't speak any English. Um, and so that it immediately put us in a position where you have to start with these very, low income, low, low, low prestige jobs. 
Yeah, uh, because God, the that must be that so hard. like working with your hands. Yeah, wow. because they you don't you don't know the language, and uh, there were a lot of immigrants who were in that position. If you're an immigrant who knows English, you come into the United States knowing English, your skills transfer. Obviously, it, it's still not a perfect transfer. There's still a lot of like social uh, dynamics, like uh, cultural knowledge that you think isn't extremely important, but is actually very important um, when you're networking um, that they still would have not had. But if you don't know English at all and you have to sort of start from scratch there, then it's uh, a totally different situation. Then yeah. uh, you can just give up any, I, you know, uh, any thoughts of, of holding on to any class yeah. um, it, it, where you were, at least when we were. So in, in Pakistan, I remember I went to private school. Um, we had help around the house. Um, and I, I never felt like I wanted anything, you know, um, mm -hmm. I, I, I wouldn't say spoiled and like extremely wealthy or anything, but I, I never felt, uh, the way that I started to feel <laughs> when we were in America that, oh, there are certain things, there are certain limitations. Like my friends are living a certain way and I cannot live that way. Right. They have certain things and I don't have access to them. That was, I never got that feeling, um, uh, when we were in Pakistan. And so for my parents, it was, uh, obviously it was a huge leap and it changed their social environment entirely. Um, and it meant something weird for me in that, you know, I, growing up, I had, I almost wrote about this. I was actually in, I'm actually in the middle of writing about this. Um, I, kinda, I had two sets of friends. <laughs> They're totally different. I had the set of friends that I made at school and I had the set of friends um, that I made in my apartment complex, mm -hmm. and they were they were just you know on separate ends of the social spectrum. You know, my school friends were the kids of you know doctors and engineers and like people people with good degrees who made good money who lived in good homes, um, well behaved kids dressed well. Um, uh, got good grades, had very attentive parents. Um, and my apartment friends were just this, I don't know how to describe it because they were just so different. It was like this ragtag bunch of people. They were much more, you know, colorful in the sense that they were very diverse racially. My school friends were white or Asian, um, and that includes South Asian. Um, and my, my apartment friends were you know, there were Hispanics, there were um, lots of black kids, lots of, you know, like it was just, mm -hmm. it was yeah. just this mix. And it, it, my apartment friends had totally different family arrangements. Um, they had, you know, maybe they were just, they were, they had single moms only or dads, like single parent households, or they had like multi-generational, like weird, like I'm living with my grandma and my uncle's also living with us. And it, just these arrangements that were very, you know, like whoever could, what whatever was necessary in that family for that moment, people just shack up together um, at that income right. level. Um, and then there were immigrants there who had, you know, many, many, like just <laughs> felt like multiple families crowded in one home. You know, you have your nuclear family, your, your, you know, mom and your dad, but then you also have like an uncle who's coming over from wherever uh, needs to get settled in America. You also have yeah, you know, uh, cousins or whatever who are shacking up, and um, you know, I so in so many different ways, like the the lives that these two groups of of friends were living were so different, and so I almost felt like I was in in between two different worlds when I would um, well, not you know, almost from school really, oh, but yeah, it, I was, yeah. yeah, yeah, and um, 
when it came time for high school, my school friends, we became obsessed, all of us together, just like with college. Yep. <laughs> with, oh, okay. With, yeah. With, oh, we got to get into college. Oh, we got to do this. We could test prep and and strategizing so specifically. I mean, it was, truly was strategies of how, which classes we could take, what grades we could anticipate from those classes right. based on like, if you get this teacher, she's easy, you can get an A plus plus whatever and this is what it means for your gpa and this is you know and and trying to calculate where we would end up on the class rank because it was so it was so complicated but we would plan these things in such detail um all for this one goal which was you know college at the end of it and then my you know my apartment friends they had no plans like this whatsoever Mm -hmm. they were just oh okay i mean i guess i'll go to college (laughs) you know and i and i remember thinking no, you won't, you know, mm-hmm. because you don't, you haven't even thought of it. You haven't taken any of the classes. You haven't taken any of the, you know, test prep or whatever. You don't even know what an SAT means until one day the school will give it to you. And then you'll be like, oh, okay, this is a, something I'm supposed to do, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and in fact, many of them either didn't go to college or went to community college two years, then that was it you know, right. get their associate's degree. Um, some of them like more, you know, the, the more studious students. And by this, I don't mean like, I don't, I'm not saying these people are dumb. I'm just, no. you know, they're, it's, it has nothing to do with intelligence really. Um, uh, but the more studious ones who got good grades, like they would go to two years of community college and then they would finish up at the local city university. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was their, you know, four-year degree. So they did have a four-year degree, but it had nothing, there was no prestige about it. Um, and they didn't network and they didn't even live in dorms. They live with parents, right. that kind of thing. You know, and th- so this is still the majority of America, you know? Yeah. And it's not, it's not the majority of people listening to this podcast. It's not the majority of people that, I mean, I don't, I don't think I, on a day-to-day basis, outside of my family, I don't know who I encounter that was in that position. Um, yeah, well, but, I mean, the majority of colleges are, I think, commuter colleges. I mean, yeah, the majority of college students don't live on campus. They're working jobs. They're living at home. Yeah, our our notion of college is like kind of Hollywood. It's just it's, it's totally a very it's, very it's, specific it's, thing. It's upper, like it's middle to upper class. Like that's what it is. It's not, it's not a kind of college that is accessible beyond like, you know, you have to be at least 40th percentile of the income bracket to even consider this kind of college as a realistic possibility. And for me, it was a leap, you know, and I, I knew that it was a leap and I knew that I was taking risks and, but because of my friend group at, at school, I, I knew that this was, I had to do it. I had to make at least one leap. What I couldn't do was go to community college and get an associate's degree. That would not, you know, that, that would not be sufficient, regardless mm-hmm. of how intelligent, you know, I knew that I, I knew that I was smart. I knew that I was a hard worker. I knew that I could get far with that alone, but I knew that it wasn't enough um, to, to get myself to, and I, so Here's, I think, the other difference between, uh, you know, what you saw for yourself as a 17-year-old and what I saw for myself. I I just wanted to be, I wanted to have enough money that I could not have to worry about, you know, 
like worry about what might happen in a year if something happened to my spouse or my dad. You know, like I I didn't want to worry about health scares. I didn't want to worry about. You mean when you were a kid? Sorry, you're saying that you you wanted to put yourself in a career that was secure mm -hmm. when you were thinking yeah. about that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wanted, I, because f when I was 17, it was uh, the height of the, um, uh, the great recession, I guess, but, uh, that's, is that what we called that? This recession? would have been what? 2008. Yeah. Well, that was the housing. Yeah. Yeah. The housing yeah. collapse. Um, that's, that's, uh, that's around that time for me. Um, was when the housing collapse was happening and my parents' businesses, my had, parents had small businesses, but they were just destroyed. Mm. Um, everybody I knew was struggling hard, you know, then they were, some people had to sell their homes. Many people had to sell their homes actually um, and downgrade their living standards substantially. Um, and that really scared me, you know, and it's, it scared me a lot. It scared me off of businesses, <laughs> which is, um, I look so back you went I straight think, to nonprofit smart. You say, <laughs> you said, you said, well, if I'm not going to make any money no, no, anyway, no. I might as well do I it. I thought I would do good or get way. a career that was like, I had a salary. Like I always thought I want a salary. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be, I don't want a business. I want a salary because a salary means, um, you know, 401k, it means like retire. I, I didn't know what a 401k was, by the way, back then. No, I, I had never heard of such uh, a thing. Nor of course, did no one I. And I, and I actually yeah. still am not sure what that is. Yes. Mm -hmm. So it just was retirement, right? I wanted, yeah. I wanted my own retirement. I wanted a, a reliable salary. And I, uh, yeah, that was my, that was my reach. And that's what I wanted for myself. And that's what I was working hard to get at that age, because it was, my dad started to have a lot of health problems around that time. I was right about at the cusp of going to college and here's this economic downturn and it's terrible for my family. It's terrible. Like we've, we've been working up, we've been making it in America. We've been, you know, slowly expanding our businesses and things are looking up for us. And then they look down. I mean, then <laughs> everything wow. gets ruined. Um, and I never outgrew that. And what kind of jobs had they had in Pakistan? Um, my mom was a teacher, uh, for a short period of time until she became a housewife. She was a biology teacher, um, or science teachers, science plus, I think it was bio specifically. Um, and my dad worked at a bank. Um, he has had a master's in economic something. I don't know, but he, he worked at a bank and he was doing fairly well for himself. Um, I remember because we, we lived, we lived nicely and, um, I remember, I think I visited him at work once and it was very cool. Um, his workplace was cool. Wow. Uh, so it that's, seemed, you know, <laughs> it was that, a different life. That's and then... <laughs> really, that must have, I just can't even imagine how difficult to make that leap. I mean, they must have been really determined. They must have had really good reasons for coming yeah, to I, America. Yeah, I mean, you just have to forget about class aspirations, right? Because you're starting from the very bottom now. Um, and when we first, first got into America, like right at the beginning, it was the jobs that my parents could qualify for basically was just, uh, you know, in the stock room, you know, um, yeah. working as a cashier at, at somewhere. Like it was, it was very, very low income jobs, like hard work. Like you had to stand on your feet all day. I remember my dad would just have these jobs where he would just stand for 12 hours a day and come home and he was exhausted and he couldn't. 
um, he couldn't interact with us. And I felt like I lost my father a little bit for a couple of years because he was just so tired. Mm. He would work seven mm. days a week. Oh. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't take a day off, um, like for a long time until he started to take Sundays off. Um, that wasn't until I was much, much, much older, like almost in college when he started to take Sundays off. Um, but it was just, it was, I mean, and they're, they're doing fairly well for themselves now. Um, you know, my dad's a manager, I don't know, somewhere, but a warehouse type thing. I don't know exactly. I don't understand it. But, but were they angry um, about this? Like, what was their attitude? No, were they, no, they, they, they were determined. So they felt that it was worth it. They weren't, I mean, they wanted, I would, us, I would they just wanted be so me resentful. to live in this country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it wasn't, so it was a choice, right? I mean, you can't be, it, it, they, they, they chose this for themselves. They wanted for me and my yeah. siblings to live in this country with all the security and safety that this country provides. Um, and I think that was a very, uh, obviously it's self-sacrificing to a degree that's, you know, even now, now that I'm a mother, it's still like, wow, like that, was, that was a lot that they, that they did for us. And there were, uh, you know, decades of working extremely hard. Um, but I, I also understand that, you know, when you're in a developing country, especially a country like Pakistan, like unless you have a lot of money or the richest like tippy tip, uh, it is a very insecure place for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you can, it is worth getting out. Um, mm-hmm. And even even if even if that means being at the, the bottom where you are for a little while. And they were always they always felt like they would never stay there. They would never stay at the bottom. And truly, like even, with the exception of the the housing collapse, um, uh, market collapse in 2008, um, we were doing better. You know, every year it was just tiny little steps, but every year we were doing better for ourselves. We would, you know, we started in this like really terrible one bedroom apartment. It was so awful. And there were too, too many of us crammed in that apartment. Um, and then we slowly made it to, you know, a two bedroom, a three bedroom, then a townhouse, then renting a house than owning a house, you know? So it's like mm-hmm. one tiny, tiny steps at a time to get to a slightly bit better living standard. Um, so th- they were right to th- think that, you know, if we work very hard, you know, we have a shot. And that's all they thought, that, that we have a shot. It wasn't that you definitely will make it. It wasn't this idea that everybody, you know, American Americans think that they can just pull themselves up by the bootstraps. I don't think that's, I don't think that's a view of, like Americans that they definitely will make it if they try hard enough. It's just that, that it's possible yeah. and it's worth trying for. Yeah. Um, and that's, that was my parents' attitude. And so they expected, like many immigrants, they expected their children to work just as hard <laughs> um, and to make that leap from, you know, from, from the, the foundation that they had granted us to make a leap um, into a, a, decent lifestyle for ourselves and many for many immigrants that i know they this was a uh this was actually how it how it played out for many of them um that is not how it plays out for low income americans in general that's like a specific immigrant thing yes um you know so i had this opportunity of being amongst low income americans for some time and and sort of witnessing their their habits and and uh, their cultural knowledge and how it impacts how they're going to do. Um, and it, it f- I, I knew, even when I was very young, I knew that I wasn't like my other apartment friends. You know, I, I knew that I would 
live a different life when we were older than they would. I just knew that. And I wouldn't have, I, I didn't know how to articulate it. And I, I never did articulate it in my, you know, I, I never verbalized that, but I just, I always knew I wasn't like them. In some significant way, you know, in some way that really mattered, I had a, I had a shot at something that they didn't have. Yeah. And, you know, now as an adult, I'm trying to think about, you know, social mobility and, and what I had, given that I was the child of people who were really transplants from a different class, you know? Yeah. Um, and what I brought with me it, it over, even, even, you know, overseas and even over here, even to a different culture, what that granted me. They were transplants that, from a higher class is what you're saying. They were transplants from a higher class. Yeah. 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 And, 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 you know, it, 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 even you can see this in when it comes to like American immigrants, like it's really interesting to look at immigration patterns and how ethnic groups do when they come from different, um, you know, different countries yeah. and then different classes of those countries. So people who have, uh, you know, work visas do very differently. American South Asians in general, but specifically Indian, but all South Asians tend to do better than South Asians, specifically Pakistanis in the UK, for example, the UK Pakistanis are like low, low class and they stay there. Um, and so much of that has to do with the fact that many of them came in for these waves of immigration, right. uh, migration, really. Well, they were migrant workers in yeah. like the 60s, 70s. Like that's that's even earlier, some of them. But the, they were coming in in the, in the middle of the 20th century as low wage workers. And they were specifically, you know, select, I mean, not explicitly selected that way, but it just it just happened that the, these, this wave was coming in from a low segment of like Pakistani class, uh, you know, strata. Right. And they right. stayed there. You know, they're in UK. They're still like that. They're still hmm. there. That's not the case with um, American immigrants. Um, like Indian Americans make more than any other ethnic group by like orders of magnitude. That's crazy. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that they were a certain kind of people, even when they even as they, you know, crossed the border. So there's, you know, I, f I feel like I have a lot to say about class mobility um, and how realistic it is. And I feel very, you know, to the extent that I'm emotionally tied to any kind of politics, I'm very, very affected um, by, um, I, I don't know if the word is affected, but I, I, I care a lot about politicians who make an effort to make the lives of this lower the lowest you know 25 percent mm -hmm. um not just a little bit better but allow them to have that opportunity that i know i know they're not getting in so many different ways in so many ways that are really invisible to anyone who's not them right your um, apartment friends is who, my that's apartment who you're friends, talking yeah. about like right right i mean even so so if you got into let's say you got into the uh gifted program um let's say you're smart, you're a smart kid, you get into the gifted program. Um, where I was, it was, there was no, there were no gifted classes offered in the middle school where I was in the same way. There was a separate gifted school, um, mm -hmm. you know, um, or there were some gifted classes offered. I'm sorry. Um, there were some gifted classes offered, but it wasn't the same. It wasn't a full on full fledged program, developed program. They had a separate program at a different school. So if you have money, you drop your kid off, you know, five miles further to this special school where they get 
all these these amazing resources, these excited teachers who are very enthusiastic, very knowledgeable, have all these degrees. Yeah. They can help your kid. Um, what if you just don't have another car? <laughs> yeah. What if the family has one car and it sucks anyway, you know, and the breadwinner has to take it to work and there's no one is going to drop the kid off. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. um, how do you even literally how do you get there? You don't get there. You don't go to that school. Um, and there's a thousand yeah. little ways, yeah. you know, that just they're not that nobody sees it. Nobody sees a thousand little ways that prevent anyone from who just doesn't have access to these things to get ahead, even if they have everything that everything going for them. They're intelligent, they're hardworking, they're charismatic, conscientious, whatever. Right. Well, and often um, there are often there are ways, but they're just they don't know about them. Like there probably yeah. is some kind of volunteer network that would help drive that would that would drive these kids to this school if anybody knew about it. Like it could probably be organized, but yeah, there's just like, yeah. So I I yeah. remember yeah they try they try, but it's even a lot of that requires like a, a level of information. You're right, yeah. like, about the system. You know, but also somebody to communicate. So in order to have a volunteer group, you know, you have to have a you have to understand that something like this can happen. Either right. you organize it within the community, but then you have to have enough other people in the same circumstance as you. Yeah. Um, uh, but they're, I mean, just these little things, right? They just add up and add up and add up. And then you get to a point where it, something like our college admissions program is insane. It is. It, everybody complains about it. Oh, my God, the kid has to do this and this and jump through these hoops. It's hard for somebody in the upper middle class to access. It's impossible for someone lower than that. You, you mean know, you're talking about the application process and the financial just the aid, full process, everything. right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, just getting just getting to the point of having a complete application to go to a four year university is th- that route <laughs> is tough. Yeah, for the 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 lowest, you know, Americans. Right. Like and that. again, there are there are organizations that will help you, but you have to know about them and you have to find those people and get to them. And yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay. So, uh, where do you come down on, on debt forgiveness? This is what this is all leading up to, of course. Yeah. I'm, I'm mad about it. And, you know, and the the reason I'm mad about it, I think is as actually broader than the specific debt forgiveness. So there's that, element of unfairness that I think everybody intuitively grasps, like, right. We all, I I don't think I have to say it explicitly or do I, do you think, do you think it has to be articulated why it's unfair? Well, (laughs) what about it? No, I mean, it's, it is, I don't, it is by definition unfair, but then you could say, well, life is unfair. Everything is unfair. I don't know. I don't have a, I mean, I, I have a sort of emotional response to this, but I don't, I'm still What's agnostic. Your response? Well, that it annoys me because I, I was, my life was absolutely defined by crippling debt for a very long time, and the idea that somebody could have just come along and taken it away, uh, you know, that that there, I have a visceral response. But it, you know, on a logical level, I think, okay, well, let's let's hear the let's let's hear what this how this might work. I don't know. I mean, it all yep. on balance. Um, it sounds to me like a good thing. I have to say, like at the end of the day, my inclination is to think that this is a good thing overall. But tell me mm-hmm. why I'm wrong. 
Yeah. So I, so what somebody would respond to you in terms of like, I had a rough and now, you know, but, but they bring up that cancer analogy, which is so, it's so great. Oh, I haven't heard that one. Um, Oh, you haven't heard that? It's like saying I got cancer and I suffered through chemo and then I beat cancer. So now I don't want there to be a cure for cancer. (laughs) I'm going to pull up, I'm going to pull up the, 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 the drawbridge uh, on cancer. <laughs> so it's crazy because one, no one chooses cancer. Okay. Like we, we sign those loans. We don't choose cancer. Um, and the other, and I think this is the more important. Well, it, it, and, it, and it's important to note that nobody says this about cancer. Like, and that's important that there's a reason and not because it's super cruel, but because it, it to, to say, it, but because everybody intuitively understands that, Fairness has nothing to do with it. We all want a cure uh, for very good reasons. And we don't. We all want uh, yeah. progress in terms of health. Um, That's so that a other bizarre people analogy. No I one, didn't realize people were making that comparison. People were making it. And it's 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 absurd, right? I mean, people are not – cancer survivors are not saying this. And there's a reason they're not no. saying this. But people that, that, that have paid off their debt are saying this. And you can either – you can either um, – say that, oh, that's because these people are selfish and those people are not selfish. Or you can think about the ways in which it's a very different scenario <laughs> and what makes a difference. So you don't choose you yeah. don't choose cancer, but you also you also don't have lifetime benefits for getting cancer. And that this is what the part right. of it that makes me angry that the that that the progressive party is even focusing on student loans. You know, student loans are the loans of privileged Americans. Okay, well, we know why they're focusing on them, because this is the demographic that they want on their team. Yeah. Well, it's already on their team. It's already. But they want to make sure. They're pandering to. They're pandering to their base, and this is their base. And, you know, it it, it makes me angry because it doesn't fix the problem at all. Like, there's no, if anything, there's good reason to believe that this will make the problem worse, that it will make tuition worse, um, that, you know, uh, that it uh, damages our sense of loans and like what what federal loans even mean. And um, it will incentivize students to borrow more in the future or borrow more carelessly in the future. Um, I mean, there's there's a lot about this that uh, that policy wise, I don't know if if it if it makes any sense in terms of fixing the problem. I think it might even make the problem worse. I did think initially that it might make inflation worse, but having read up on it a little bit more, it seems like those fears are overblown. Um, that the nature of debt forgiveness is such that it, you know, people are not going to go on spending spree- sprees. <laughs> they're not. Mm-hmm. They don't. They don't suddenly feel like they have. $10,000 in their pocket if that amount is forgiven. And I mean, it's if also, anything, is it like an economic stimulus? Are they then going to go out and spend that money people, in other yeah, ways? Some people, but regardless, it's not a lot of money because it's $10,000 over yeah, the course actually, of like again, 10 it's, years. It's $10,000, right? It's, is it capped at that? I mean... It's $20,000 for Pell Grant right. uh, recipients. So someone Which like me good. would have gotten $20,000. Okay, off. so how do you feel about that? I mean, Pell Grants are for low, very, it should, low, very yeah, low-income uh, students, correct? People who used to make... Used to come... Like, I used to come from low-income. I don't think I should have $20,000 yeah, for the time, I have a good life now. Right? Okay, no, no, not now. But, like, so you think that even Pell Grant borrowers should not be the recipients of this? 
it doesn't, it's where you used to be and where you are now is very different. It, it, it should, okay. the, 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 the cap is what matters. And the cap is what annoys me that it's um, 125,000 for a single earner is the cap. Um, for your for income. Everybody to, knows this, but just so income. we're clear. Okay. So if you're making yeah, for, 125000 or less, you are eligible for this for $10,000 worth yeah, of student yeah. loan forgiveness. Yeah. Or it might be like less than $125,000. So 124. I'm not sure. Yeah, exactly of course. I mean, but that, that's the thing. Is, but, it, you could yeah. be making 20000 a year or you could be making 124999 a year. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. That is such a huge. So this is this is the, the cur- so there are two two issues I have with this. One is that the income cap is just so high. It is yeah. so high. People who live 120 you know, uh, people who are living at that 120 mark, and that's just that's for single earners, right? So yeah. Double that if it's possible to double that. And often people who earn a lot marry people who earn a lot, <laughs> like people right. who go to college and go to go into finance, and you know they're 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 working at at McKinsey. They marry other people who are working at McKinsey or whatever. Um, but but it's just too, it's so high. And as somebody who grew up in that you know lower sort of strata, they live a life like 120 people past the 100k mark live a life that I couldn't have imagined you know and it was it was so so different from my upbringing they had already had access to so many things that I didn't have access to it doesn't make any sense to have a policy that has a cap so high it's yeah. four times the average american income that makes no sense that's that's not progressive that's regressive you know, by definition, there's there, if you just if if you said to me uh, that we're going to do this exact program, but the income cap is going to be, you know, something reasonable, something near the average American income, anywhere near it, I would be so much more like my emotional reaction wouldn't be as it is. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, because it, it it doesn't feel right to me that that we should be giving because there are, of course, legislative priorities. It's maybe maybe one can argue that in the end, you know, three hundred billion is not that much money. Whatever, maybe we can make that argument. But legislative priorities matter, and it matters to me that this is a uh, a, a a political tribe that wh- whose legislative priorities are to give more benefits to a group of people that actually is, on the whole, <laughs> doing fairly right. well and will continue to do fairly well. Um, and that's the second element of it. The income cap is too high. That's one. The second is that college is not like other debt. College will provide you like it's not like medical debt, right? Like medical debt, you, you, right. you're cured of your cancer. <laughs> like you're still worse off than everybody else because you had cancer and now you yeah. have all that weakness that goes along with it. Um, but college pays off dividends for the rest of your life. People who graduate college, who, who have good degrees, especially people who have fancy degrees, you know, who've taken out a lot of loans to get that name, they will they will do better for the rest of their lives. They will make a significant, you know, it, it, there's a significant difference in earnings um, throughout the life lifetimes of people with with college degrees and we know this right so even if you say that i'm making i just i'm a, i just graduated college i have a ton of loans i'm you know only making quote unquote only making 50k um that doesn't mean that i will only be making 50k because maybe my degree is awesome maybe i have maybe i went to columbia you know and you know got a decent degree there uh and i can reasonably anticipate that i will not stay at that income level mm-hmm. that's that's a, that's an important consideration when we look at our legislative priorities. It's it 
it, and it just it breaks my heart that that the quote unquote progressive you know party seems to increasingly be blind to these sort of class dynamics right um you know and and my the first time that i i, I grew very angry at at the democrats or the left in general was um i think i mentioned it a little bit on this podcast was um when we were discussing lockdowns and when we were discussing school closures that there wasn't yes enough uh you know it, it just seemed like there was no understanding um and, and no clear discussion about the effect of school closures on low-income families you know and how devastating that could be you know and i think back if the way that i grew up if there was a school closure for over a year that would have been a year that i wasn't educated yeah no or in (laughs) some cases fed i mean for a lot of kids going to school is where they get at least two of their meals maybe they're only two meals of the day now there's so i mean there's so much to this i I mean with with the college thing i'm curious what you think or if you have any thoughts about whether some types of education are more worthy of being paid off than others because i i have to say i have a really speak speaking as somebody who has um, a pretty superfluous fine arts degree. I don't think that those sorts of degrees should be paid off. And I'm going to piss off a lot of my friends by saying this, but they, you know, and it's beyond that. I mean, there are so many useless PhD programs. There are so many diploma mills out there. There, it's it's on and on. There are so many people in higher education that don't need to be there that are wasting their money that are lining the yeah. pockets of of administrators and i just think the entire higher education project needs to be rethought and reframed oh, yeah. the proposal that that makes sense to me are systemic changes that would allow for poor people to even have access to begin with yeah um but what can we do to address the bloating costs um of college and lastly there needs to be a a way out for people who have like if let's say i am an idiot and i did go to you know a really expensive private school and i got an art degree and now i am you know $300,000 in debt i need these loans to be dischargeable in bankruptcy like that's what mm-hmm. i need i need an out like mm-hmm. that you know and i suffer for 7 years but then i'm out you know and then i'm free and i can make a life for myself you know um, so that doesn't bother you, like ethically. That doesn't bother me morally? because I think it's it's seven years a long time. <laughs> you're paying, but then you know? and then you're. So that's oh, fascinating. So I, you, you don't know, think, I don't. So you know, don't wait a second. Wait fair. a second. I don't think you can. Oh yeah. So, but you, right now, you you cannot declare bankruptcy over student loans because believe me, no. I looked into this. I, yeah, yeah. That's yes, what I, I mean. Did. You can't. Oh, I see so what we you're need saying. To make them. We need to make. <laughs> so you them, should be able to do uh, that. Well, the Republicans are not going to like that. I mean, I know people. You know, the real I know people who went to film school who ended up hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt because it costs a lot of money to make a film, especially Mm. back when you had when equipment was incredibly expensive. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying this. I'm not defending anybody like that necessarily. I'm just saying that, you know, that's an example of, of something that you kind of if you go to film school, you cannot avoid getting into a lot of debt. I mean, something like what I did, I just got into debt because I went to an expensive place, but 
you know, didn't, doesn't cost you anything. I don't know. I just think the whole, I, I think, you know, if, if I was somebody who had like gone, gotten an engineering degree and then really slaved away to pay off my loans and I saw somebody with a, with an expensive degree in ceramics, uh, having their loan forgiven, I would be pretty mad. Yeah. And I think understandably mad, right? Because the engineering degrees are not as fun. I mean, there's this idea that well, some no, people and, just and you know, and then they're taking them. And I know people who would wanted to, you know, who would have wanted to go to art school, but they did the smart thing instead. Yep. I mean, absolutely. Everybody I know that's gotten these sort of these these tough tough degrees, um, they you know will take one or two humanities classes, and they'll be like, "Wow, there's so much fun! Right? Like, it's so it's so interesting, you know, to learn about these things." Right. And meanwhile, you know, it's not as interesting in that same way um, to to learn about math equations. And a lot of uh, by um, the way, and also you know, this since this is uh, what our podcast is often about, a lot of men make that sacrifice too. A lot of men, they they I've heard this. I I would have been an English major, but I knew that I was probably going to have to support a family one day. So yeah. I went to law school or I did this yeah. other thing. You hear that more from men than women. I know a right. lot of women uh, running around thinking, okay, well, I don't have the mindset that I'm going to have to support a, a family. So I'm yeah. just going to go and get this yeah. a- MFA and, um, you know, lyric essay or something. <laughs> I just, not that there's anything wrong with the lyric essay. But, it's um, such a luxury to not have to worry about supporting yeah. anyone, you know. Um, and that, right. that was my my initial plan was college and then law school eventually, um, mm-hmm. like save up for a couple more years and, you know, work work for a few years and go back to law school. That was my idea. And then I would have my finally I would have my salary, <laughs> like my good salary that mm-hmm. would support of my parents forever. Um, and I think one of the most you know, the things I feel very guilty about and it's sort of, it's the opposite of, I think, what a lot of people expect, you know, when they come to me and they, you know, thank me for my work or something, you know, like maybe they've been impacted by it, impacted by it directly about with one of my nonprofits. Um, And, you know, they say you must feel good about, you know, what you've done for people. And it must be so nice to feel like that you've helped people in this way. And it, it, it does, but I, balance that with a lot of guilt over not taking the more um, sensible choice in terms of my career. There's no way to get it right. Like, what's the ideal thing to to make a lot of money in some do-gooder way? Like, have some, have some company that is changing the world and that you're also becoming yeah it's very it's impossible to really do uh, yeah i mean i guess you could be all of that. some kind of like biotech entrepreneur but god knows the <laughs> unintended consequences of your work in that realm yeah 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 wow well um, yeah this is a big so it'll be interesting to see how this shakes out obviously um i don't know how quickly they're going to implement this policy because they're going to be you know they're going to be you know people are going to try to stop it from actually being implemented there's going to be like is it like lawsuits or they're going to be um attempts to to not have it go through so i'm sure a lot of people i mean god if i if you know if this had gone through if if this had happened 
20 years ago or more than that when I was, yeah, about 20 years ago when I was in all that debt, I would have been just over the moon. I mean, it would have changed my life. Although, you know, not that much. I mean, I was so bad that 10,000, it wouldn't have been, you know, certainly would have been helpful, but that would not have been life changing. Yeah. I don't know if it is life changing for anyone, you know, like unless you are very, again, unless you are lower income right they're not making it so that it actually is life-changing like yeah how about you structure this so that the people you do it for you're actually going to change their lives yeah lower income cap and maybe i would if you said the the income cap is a third of what it is now but they're getting twice as much i would my emotional response to that would be very different if anything Mm. it would just be mostly positive like in a way Mm -hmm. that it isn't even though generally speaking i think debt reduction debt forgiveness is not a smart policy in the long run. It's a short term. It's a Band-Aid that might make things worse. So I'm generally not for them in any case. But if you structured it in that way, my emotional response will be very different. And it would be like intellectually, maybe I would say, yeah, maybe debt forgiveness isn't good. But emotionally, I would feel positive towards this, towards this measure, um, positively towards this measure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this was a very, this is a very like, um, straight the you know, serious conversation no you got us. it you 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 took the ball and ran with it yeah I'm it's really sorry. no i just I, think you're I, no I, your I'm story so is fascinating people down <laughs> that, that this doesn't bring me down sarah this, it doesn't this right this, this raises me up no it's your story is really interesting and i think people you know appreciate your sharing it um, i think uh, yeah i i i thought your essay was so good um your aspirations to this lifestyle were so interesting to me it was like and it well, was, people it were was very mad about that essay when it came out i mean of course oh, really? oh yeah well Wait, why? um because uh, because it, it sounds like solipsism well anytime you write about yourself you sound like you're complaining i mean i think um it's easy to read that on a certain level and just think oh this is like um some rich white girl complaining about not being richer you know the the piece was very hard to write and those were that I had exquisite editing I mean I remember actually I can tell you a little bit about writing that piece I mean I I sat in my apartment I remember writing it I think it was probably the summer of god I know it was the summer was it it was 90 was it the summer of 98 something like that when I first I don't know. I remember it was summer because I'd never had air conditioning in my apartment. And God, I mean, nobody really did. And it was hot. And I would I was sitting at my big computer. And I remember just being so freaked out about my whole situation. And it just it, it was wrapped up in so many things. It had to do with being a, a writer and a freelance writer and wanting to live in New York and wanting to have a certain life and really wanting to say things and you know, not wanting to, to, you know, I, I wish that I was writing for the Paris review and not glossy women's magazines. I mean, I was hustling by the way. I mean, I worked my ass off. I worked temp jobs and then I would come home and write all night freelance articles and I would pitch them and I would just, I would write anything for money. I mean, I, there Mm -hmm. is not a single, single thing (laughs) I have not written for money. Okay. And, uh, I, I, and I remember thinking I'm in such a state of emergency now. I also didn't have health insurance. So a lot of that money, I also had these, had some medical bills that had contributed to this and just, you know, it went on and on and on. And um, my parents were not able to, to, to help me. 
Um, and they, my parents also sort of had this attitude about money, like, well, whatever <laughs> like my father would say, <laughs> my father would be like, it's just plastic. You know, he would like oh. take out a credit card and say, yeah, you know, do, we would be at a restaurant and he'd be like, do you take plastic? That was what he would say oh. to the waiter. I know. Um, but I sat there and wrote that piece and it felt incredibly urgent. Like I had to say this and I felt like a lot of people were in the same boat and feeling a similar way. And I remember that I sent it to my agent at the time and I said, I want you to send this to the New Yorker because that's what you did. And I, and he said, okay. And he sent it to an editor of the New Yorker. Um, and it was somebody who, and I had already had a piece of the New Yorker. Like I had this kind of other big splashy essay maybe a year earlier. Um, and he sent it and it got, and it got rejected or something. And I said, I, I reject this rejection. I am just, <laughs> this piece is so urgent to me. I am not going to. So I went to the, the, the person who had been like the line editor on my previous piece in the New Yorker. This is, this was not a, an acquiring editor. This was an editor that you work with once you get your piece accepted and they really get into the weeds with you. And this, this was not somebody who normally would be the one to, to commission a piece, but I kind of slipped it to her under the table. I don't even think I told my agent and I, and I sort of said like, you know, I'm working on this piece. Do you, could you just take a look at it and tell me what you think of it? Like, I just kind of want your editorial advice. And she said, mm -hmm. okay, I'll work with you on this. And, you know, maybe we can get it into the magazine. And we went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth for months. I mean, draft after draft after draft. And they finally kind of ran it up the flagpole and it got pretty far. And there was a high level editor that really liked it. And there was another high level editor and not going to name names, very high level editor who mm. uh, didn't like it. And oh. uh, it was all ready to go. And it was, but, but, you know, they, they were making last minute decisions. I mean, this, this was a, this is a weekly magazine and it was, it is a weekly magazine. It's in print. Everything gets, you know, the magazine can get pulled apart at the last minute. Um, and it was all ready to go and it almost got killed. The, it was this other editor decided that it should not be in the magazine. And what I heard was that enough of the editorial assistants and the lower level people in the office were like, no, this piece is important and this speaks to us. And so it has to run. And it did. And wow. I have to say it, that if that, I remember thinking, if this piece doesn't run, I am going to rent out a billboard and put it on a billboard. I feel so urgent about saying this in this way. And that's actually how mm -hmm. I've always felt about my work. My, 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 th this is why I do this. There's stuff that I really think is important to say. Like That's why I keep doing my other podcasts, for instance. I feel like it's really important to have the conversations with the people I do the way we have them on The Unspeakable. And you know, it's, it's not the, the, the highest rated podcast in, in the world. It's not something that I'm making a lot of money from at this point, but I keep doing it because I actually feel like it's really important. Yeah. Um, it is important. Yeah. So what that were anyway, you trying to get, what was I trying to say in that piece? I guess I was just yeah. trying to say something about the way that it was really about New York and about the way that the New York is a city that was, so, so much defined by artists for, for decades, you know, in the seventies and the eighties, you could live in Soho, um, in some big shabby loft, 
and and real and be a serious artist and it was affordable you could live you could be a starving artist in new york you could live that life for a long time and then after the reagan era that started to change i mean i was talking about economic changes to the city that seem incredibly quaint now but it was pretty drastic and so mm. i was i was really just talking about this artistic legacy of New York City. And actually mm -hmm. my big inspiration for the piece was The House of Mirth, the Edith Wharton novel. It, it's exactly the same theme. Lily Bart, the, the main character is, uh, is, is not from a, a wealthy family, but she's desperate to, to, you know, reach, get, get to a higher social strata. And her only way of surviving is to try to mingle with these people that she's not one of. And so she gets invited to parties out in the Hamptons. I mean, this is taking place around the, the you know, in the early 1900s. And so she goes out to parties in the Hamptons and she's trying to, to be with men who are wealthy and who will, you know, who will help her be the person that she wants to be. But the fact is that her only means of survival is to, mingle with these rich people she's gotten herself into a situation where she's helpless and if mm -hmm. she doesn't marry a rich guy basically uh she's gonna die but she can't actually fall in love with the rich guy the guy that she likes is uh well wait wait how does this work no there's a there's a nice guy who's like middle class that's right who uh -oh. likes her and she likes him but he's not he's not rich enough um, anyway, this is all to say, I need to go back and read the novel. I haven't read it in a long time, but that was really the model for the piece. It was the house of mirth. So, yeah. but yeah, when it came out, um, oh, there was the usual, oh, you're just complaining. You're just whining, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But it has gone on to be a very well-known piece. And when the New Yorker published the, a collection of, I think it was called the Gilded Age, they published a collection of all the pieces of, of selected pieces that had run over the decades that were about money and class. And it was featured in there. And yeah, it's, it's a piece a lot of people know, um, but it wasn't, it was, there were some raised eyebrows at the time for sure, but that's always <laughs> the case, right? Yeah. I mean, with good writing there, if there aren't, you know, some raised eyebrows and I think you're not, you, you, the piece doesn't hit any, any major points in you know for anyone um, you know the detail that everybody remembers about that piece i talk about how even though i don't have enough money and you know by the way i i was yeah. if i had lived anywhere else i would have had enough money i mean i was doing like pretty okay i was a successful freelance writer by by any measure i just didn't have the family money that a lot of other people had and i didn't i was on my own I didn't have any other means of support. Okay. But the detail that people remember is when I talk about how I had this idea that if I had fresh, fresh cut flowers in my apartment at all times, that that would make my life meaningful, that that's how I knew I was living a good life. I just, I had I to have these flowers. I was going to say the sushi bit. Oh yeah. I had to I have sushi. sushi. Yeah. That's, lunches. that's, that was a little bit, that's a little bit less flattering. Um, but I, yeah, I don't, I don't think I ate that much sushi, but, um, I, yeah, that's a weird detail, but I would go to the Korean deli, the Korean market where they had the fresh flowers pretty much every week. And I would, you know, spend $10 or something on a bunch of tulips 
and come and put them in a vase in my in my apartment. And I would just walk in. I think, okay, I'm an adult. I'm a grown up. I'm living the life I was meant to live because these flowers are on my table. Yeah. God, you know, that I hadn't even thought of that. If Instagram had been around when I was in my 20s, would I have been taking pictures of those flowers in the apartment every week? Yes. I don't know. But I needed that. But like, it didn't matter. I never once took a picture of the flowers. They were just there. And it meant it still. You're meant not allowed so to much. live for yourself anymore. If you're not performing, no. are you even living? No, in- none of this was perform. <laughs> that was the thing too. That all everything that that was going through, none of it was performing. It was like I wanted to feel like I was in a movie. I wanted my life to feel like wow. like I w- yeah. And that like there was a soundtrack to my life, or there was a score. Like I wanted to feel like I was living in a in a novel or just having a, a an aesthetic existence and that's actually wow. something I just never think about anymore How, do you live that life now no and I've actually written a piece about this I'll um maybe we'll we'll link to it or I'll put it on my new sub stack yeah it's because I <laughs> we should wrap this up soon because we're going yeah, off we track but somebody yeah when I had a student ask me one time a Columbia student because of course after getting into all that debt to to go to Columbia, I ended up teaching there, you know, 20 years later. And I was teaching in the very program that I went to in the same classrooms. And the students who were in the same kind of debt, worse than I was, would come and cry to me in the office. Weird. And a student said, what did you do when you were our age? How did you spend your time? Like, what did you do all day? And I thought about it. And I thought, you know what, I spent a lot of time staring into space (laughs) it's been a lot of time sitting at my desk listening to music smoking a cigarette looking out the window if i had a window oh the smoking is great god i was such a much better writer when i smoked because you know Mm. why because it's meditative so when you were writing and you couldn't think of the next thing to say you would you would light a cigarette and sit there and think about it and in the time it took you to smoke it a next thought would come to you now Mm. when that happens you just fucking look at twitter and then half an hour has gone by and your head is a mess so yeah anyway yeah i spent a lot of time thinking about thinking thoughts and also thinking about myself as if i was in like an art film as if i was in a jim jarmusch film as if I was Esther Ballant in Stranger Than Paradise, which is not a reference that you will know, but uh, none of them some are people but that's will. Okay. Yeah. That's okay. Uh, yeah. And I actually, I, I wrote a piece about this once, uh, which we can link to, but anyway, yeah, that's, uh, that's fascinating. That's so, I mean, it's the person that you're describing is so, so different from my experience and also, you know, even my life now, very unglamorous. Well, you can't live. I mean, I don't, I don't live that way. Yeah, I don't live that way now. But do you? So when I describe this, do you? Do you? Are you jealous? <laughs> or are you like, thank God I avoided that. Well, I don't. It, hmm. I wish I had the luxury to think that way a little bit, but I also feel like I never would anyway because I'm. I don't know. 
I'm not I'm not glamorous and I don't even I know I don't even you know, I wasn't glad this wasn't about glamorous but, it was but, about, yeah, I was coping like, with my anxiety New York City well, you know you were glamorous you were you just you know you had that lifestyle and you you lived like those people and all that and I for me it's like it's so yeah it's so nowhere near anything that I knew right um, that yeah. I wouldn't even know enough to desire it does that make sense? Yeah, no, like to- I, totally. I felt like I was faking it, but I think everybody felt like they were faking it. I guess I guess my point is that I had so much anxiety. I had so much financial anxiety that I coped with it by telling myself that it was worth it because I was having some kind of I, I had an existential quality of life that mm. was more important than the the lack of quality of life that was being caused by by my financial problems and i kind of have a version of that now i mean i'm in Mm. a transition now i'm doing a lot of new things the pivot continues and i have to tell myself every day uh this is worth it because i'm excited about what i'm doing i'm fired up about what i'm doing and that makes it makes it okay because otherwise i would be having a complete nervous breakdown (laughs) <laughs> no it is worth it it is it, you are do- well here's I'll, I'll i i you're doing important work you are um thank you uh maybe not in this podcast but in your other podcast oh, no, this sure. podcast is <laughs> this this podcast this is gonna is, change the world yeah i mean <laughs> look don't don't sell ourselves short um okay i think we've I, yeah this we've gone, gone we've so gone on long. too long we've gone on too long um, okay um so okay we're gonna wrap this up we're gonna do a little bit of bonus content so if bonus you guys want to hear more um we will keep please going subscribe yeah please to subscribe a special place.substack.com that's where you can subscribe and then when you are a paid subscriber you will get the um bonus content on your email in in your email um and i don't know some other way does it come up to your po- i don't know uh, maybe it comes Hell up on your podcast feed too yeah we don't we <laughs> don't know don't ask us okay it'll work just uh just cough up a little bit of money and you'll get it okay but yeah. thank you for tuning okay. in for this long that's for sure yeah okay everybody see you in hell See you in hell. Just remember, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help each other. (laughs) 